Well, good morning. Everybody stay afloat yesterday? Am I good, Todd? Okay. All right. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Psalms this morning. We're kind of jumping out of your uh, order of the Bible, and we're kind of going a little more chronologically written as we jump into this next uh, book that we're going to be looking at. But um, as you're turning there, uh, I've mentioned it before, I am a huge David Robinson fan. If you don't know who David Robinson is, he played for the San Antonio Spurs in the early 90s all the way till the early 2000s. Um, I remember my parents took me all the way to Denver, Colorado so that I could meet David Robinson. I got second row seats behind the San Antonio Spurs bench. He was sitting right there like I could have spit on him, but I'm a fan of his, so I would never have even thought of that. And I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I'm seeing these seven feet tall guys. I even got invited to go out onto the court and rebound for these guys that I looked up to. I mean, I was in heaven on earth for a 15, 16 year old kid that looked up to these guys. And I was able to tell you pretty much everything about David Robinson. I, could, I know this is gonna be super interesting to you all because you are fellow San Antonio Spurs fans. Um, he was seven foot one. He weighed 250 pounds. He had biceps chiseled by God himself. I mean, they were just immaculate. Like I'm trying to get those kind of biceps. He was a strong believer in his hall of fame speech. He talked about Luke where the 10 uh, lepers went away and only one came back and gave credit to Jesus for uh, healing him. He played 13 years in the NBA, he was one of the only guys out of four to score a quadruple double. I know you are hanging on to every word that I'm saying right now, so uh, we'll just make the whole sermon about this. Not really. But the thing is, is that if you looked at me at that time, you would almost say, Andy kind of worships that guy. I mean, I knew everything about him. I recorded every game that he played in. I would watch it. I knew stats. I, I devoted my life to learning about him so much so that I, I wore number 50 if I could. I couldn't wear number 50, so I divided, decided to cut that in half. My basketball number was 25. I made my shot look like him. I learned his moves. My life looked like his because I kind of worshiped him. And I know we have a couple gentlemen up here up front. They, they're not about David Robinson, the Texas Longhorns. They could tell you everything about the University of Texas because these two guys are diehard fans. If you want to know, they're not. But anyways, uh, cheap humor there. Um, I love David Robinson. And for you, it may not be David Robinson. For you, it's probably something else. Uh, you love hunting, and so you can talk about this is when the rut is. This is where the deer are going to go. This is the prime time to do it. This is where you want to place a shot. It might be fishing. This is the lure you're going to use. This is you know so much of that stuff. It might be your job. The thing is, is that all of us have that one thing that just we are dedicated to. And in a way, you could say we worship it. Because here's how I would define what worship is when I'm using it in that sense. Whatever you are putting at the forefront of your life, whatever it is that is driving everything that you do, that is what you worship. 
what you revolve your schedule around, what you, what you think about in your spare time, what you dedicate your efforts to, whatever you're, you're consuming your thoughts with is what you worship. And we're going to be looking at Psalms this morning where we're going to see that it is about worship and it's worshiping not just creation, it is worshiping the creator. It is worshiping Jesus as we've been going through this series about Jesus in the Old Testament. And we've been looking at these passages about where is it that we see Jesus in the Old Testament and in the book of Psalms. We're going to see that he is the source of worship. But not necessarily maybe in the way that we think of worship, as we just got done with what a lot of people would say, the worship service. But what God is doing is calling us so much more in worship to Jesus. So we're going to be in Psalms, but we're also going to be in Romans chapter 11, and that's really where we're going to land this morning. So if you want to thumb mark Romans chapter 11, and then we're just going to open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll see what God has to say. So Father God, we just come before you. And God, we are so grateful for everything that you've done for us. God, we're so grateful that we can gather together and God, just hear your word, be in your word together. And God, I pray that we grow, not just in our knowledge of your word, but in our desire to know you more and to grow in our relationship with you. So God, I just pray that you speak to us this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. All right, so the book of Psalms is actually the hymn book of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. So if you look in the pewbacks before you, we have a hymn book, and the Jewish people would sing the Psalms. They would pick one of these, and they would sing it to God. It is quoted more times than any other book in the Bible outside the book of Isaiah. So when you're reading through your New Testament, you're going to see the book of Psalms quoted by Jesus. You're going to see it quoted in Romans multiple times. You're going to see it quoted by Paul throughout his writings. The title of Psalms is Psalms, and it comes from the Greek word psalmoi, which really is poems that are to be sang to the accompaniment of musical instruments. So it's, it's kind of those songs that we sing with instruments. It's got multiple authors. You actually have King David, and he's accredited with writing half of the Psalms. 75 out of the 150 Psalms, King David is ascribed to having written. Then you have this guy named Asaph, and we see him in Ezra chapter 12, or chapter 2, and he is accredited with writing 12 of them. And he was kind of like the Kurt Zalm of the temple at that time. He was the one that came up and led the people in music. Then you have the sons of Korah, they wrote 10 of them. You have Solomon, who wrote two. You have Moses, Heman, and Ethan, who each wrote one apiece. And then you just have 48 Psalms that are anonymous. We don't really know who wrote them, but a lot of times, most of them are accredited to Ezra. So the dating of the Psalms is they, they don't really span during one period, but instead, like we said, you have Moses who wrote two of them. And so you have from the time of Moses all the way to the post-exilic time under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then finally, after Ezra, they were all collected together and put into what we know as the book of Psalms. 
The main event, really, uh, you have 150 different psalms that cover a vast majority of things, but 14 of them you can trace back to the time of 1 and 2 Samuel in the life of David. That as he's writing them, he's writing about specific events, like in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when Nathan calls David out for sleeping with Bathsheba, and then he repents and he says, I have sinned against the Lord, he pins Psalm 51 in a, a repentant psalm. The survey of the book, it is broke down into five smaller books. You'll see that, like 1 through 41, and then they're kind of broke down through there. But then you can also classify them in different categories. I did this recently. I went through, and I just wanted to know, because I wanted to grow in my prayer life. And so it was like, God, I don't know what to say. Maybe if I read a psalm. So I went through, and I just... Uh, classified what that psalm was talking about. So when I knew, God, my heart cries out to you, this is a psalm I can read. So you can classify them in laments, pouring your heart out to God, where you see psalms of David being like, God, the enemies are coming after me and you will have your way with the wicked, but God, help me in this time where God, I cannot do this on my own. I am lamenting my circumstance. You have individual and then you have community laments. And then you also have these things called imprecatory psalms, which is where the psalmist is praying for God's divine justice on the wicked. Where God, they are so against what you are about. God, let your justice be poured forth upon them. And then you also have Psalms of Confession, like Psalm 51, where David is pouring his heart out after sinning against God. And he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. So you have the laments. Then you have godly living. And this can be broke down into godly living according to God's law. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, talks about this, about God. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I delight in your law. May, may I meditate on your law. Teach me your way. Open my eyes to wondrous things out of your law. Then you have godly living according to wisdom. According to God giving you wisdom and seeking that out, where we're told things like the fear of the, there we go, it, man, I had a blank for a minute. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, psalms like that. You have thanksgiving, where you are just so appreciative for what God's done that you just Sing a psalm of thanksgiving for who he is and what he has done. Uh, that's broke down into individual and also community. You have trust in God. Talking about I'm not going to trust in chariots. I'm not going to trust in my bow or my arrow. I'm going to trust in you, O Lord. I'm not going to trust in kings. I'm going to trust in you. You have reminder of God being supreme. Boy, those psalms could come in handy in today's society where you see so many things going awry and it's like, God, I need to be reminded that you are God. You are supreme. You are over everything. You have praise. Were you just seeing praise to God because he is creator, he is provider, and he is sovereign? Where it's just like, blessed are you, O Lord. You are king of kings and Lord of lords. And I'm just gonna sing this song of praise to you. You have psalms of God's faithfulness, 
where a lot of times the psalmist is looking back at God's faithfulness. A lot of times this, there's one that looks back at God bringing the Israelites out of exile and into the promised land. It recounts the history of Israel and they are just giving God praise for being faithful. You have Psalms of God's salvation, how he saves them from their enemies. He is delivering them and giving them an eternal hope. Then you have Psalms for travel, where whenever they're going up to Jerusalem and they're preparing their hearts to worship God with each other, they sing these Psalms as they travel. And then you have temple hymns, where again, they are now getting ready to go into the temple. And so they sing these Psalms in uh, in preparation for the temple. There's a lot of prophecies. We're not gonna go through all of those, but Psalm 22 is a big one that whenever Jesus is on the cross, you see those being fulfilled where he says, my heart melts like wax. And he's talking about, he needs a drink. And it, it's quoting Psalm 22 when Jesus is on the cross. You have a lot of prophecies. And then you have five different types of messianic psalms. You have a typical messianic where Jesus, he is the subject of the psalm. You have a prophetic where they're talking about their present day age, like Psalm 22, where presently he's talking about, man, I am parched. I am going through this difficult time, but ultimately Jesus fulfills it. You have indirectly messianic where they're talking about a king in general, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that king. You have purely prophetic where Jesus is clearly the, the, the main subject of that psalm. And then you have enthronement where he looks forward to Jesus being on the throne once and forever. And so that's, a, again, a real quick overview of Psalms. Probably doesn't even do it half the justice that it deserves, but it's such a big book, and I can see half of your eyes glazing over already. So we're going to move on to, again, where do we see Jesus in Psalms? And so I want to go back to our intro. Because so many people in the world today are worshiping something. Uh, not David Thoreau, he was a different quote. Paul David Tripp. He made this quote. He said, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what, who, or of what or whom we serve. Jesus, we, we are created to worship. Psalm 43, 7 tells us that God created us for his glory, to worship him. But the thing is, is that we're going to worship something. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe, maybe it's your 401k. Maybe it's more possessions. Whatever it is, it is what we are devoting our life to. That is what we are worshiping. Because I feel like if you would ask the church in general, especially in America, what worship is, you would probably get this, this it, it means going to church, it means singing some songs, it means gathering together, it, it, it means what people do on Sunday. It, it's a one hour of the week occasion that we go and we worship God. But that's not at all what worship is is. That is a glimpse of it. That is a part of it, but it is something that God calls us to so much more. And that's what we're going to look at. Why worship God? 
Because that's the, the main theme that you're going to see in Psalms, is it is a theme of worship, that you worship God for, first off, who he is, what he has done, and what he will do for you. That, that we worship God. You read through all 150 Psalms. They all center on God and how we are to worship him. But it's not just through song. That's an aspect of it. It's not just through gathering. That's an aspect of it. But it is through how we live our life. Because of first off, who God is. That he is God. That when you truly understand who God is, you worship him. If you look through the Bible and you see people who have encounters with God, you see the first thing that they do is they fall flat on their faces. You see Abraham when he encounters God in Genesis chapter 17 and God comes before him and he falls on his face as though he were dead. Moses, whenever he's up on Mount Sinai, he realizes that God is before him. He falls on his face as though dead. Ezekiel, Isaiah, even John in John chapter 1 verse 17, or not John, Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. He sees Jesus and he falls on his face as though dead because of who God is. That he is God, that he is the one true king, as we looked at in Samuel, that he is deserving of all of our worship. So if, if you would say that about Jesus, he's deserving of all of our worship, and then you would trivialize that down to just one hour a week, that he's deserving of one hour of my life, that is really trivializing worship. Because he's not just deserving of one hour, he is deserving of your entire life. He's deserving of everything that you do because he is God. It would be like if you would say that worshiping God is like singing a song, it would be like, say you love somebody. And so you're like, you know what, I'm going to be really romantic, I'm going to write them a love song. Ooh, you're so beautiful, like, man, I'm not poetic in any way. Like, <laughs> Heather did not get that kind of guy. It's like, my poems are, my name is Bob, I got a job, then I got robbed, now I have no job, but I'm still called Bob. That's my kind of poetry. That's about as romantic as I get. But it's like, you know, say you were the romantic type, and it's like, ooh, I'm going to write you a poem, and then I'm going to go sleep around with other people the rest of the time. But I wrote you a poem, and I read it to you, ooh, I think that highly of you. That's kind of downgrading what it is like to come into this service and think this is what I'm doing for worship. Now I can live my life for myself the rest of the week. You're singing God that love song and then you're going around and you're the metaphorically sleeping around with the world against God. That we are called to live our lives of worship. That when you truly realize who God is, that is what you are going to do. That he is the king. So first off, we worship God because of who he is. Second off, we worship God because of what he has done. So when you read Romans, and you're in Romans chapter 1 all the way through about Romans chapter 11, it is telling you the gospel. 
It is telling you who God is, what Jesus has done. Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 3 lays out, this is just how bad we really are. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, no, not one. And then you get to Romans chapter 4, and it makes this transition to you are saved by grace. You are saved through faith. That it is because of what God has done. Romans chapter 5 says, while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. And so you're seeing all of what God has done for us. And then you get to Romans chapter 8, where you see God paid the price for us. Where you see in Romans chapter 8 that it says that we were unable to do it, so God did. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's laying out for us everything that God has done for us. That when you read Romans 1 through Romans 11, you're seeing the gospel laid out. And then Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it started for the Jews first. It's the power of salvation from God for the Jews first and then for the Greeks, then for the Gentiles. So then he gets to Romans chapter 11 and he starts laying out that the Jews were originally and initially they are God's chosen people. But that in order for us, because we're Gentiles, to be able to be grafted in, the Jews had to reject God. There had to be this momentary hardening of their heart so that we could come into the family of God that as Ephesians tells us, we could be adopted in. And so Paul is telling us that. And then he gets to Romans chapter 11, verse 33, where he's talking about like, man, when you try and like wrap your mind around it, it's just so, so vast and so, so brain bottling I think that's the word, like it puts your brain in a bottle and screws the cap on, you can't think clearly. And so he just goes out and he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's talking about, man, this was all part of God's plan. That God is so depth, in, that there's this depth to God that he, we, we can't tell him what he's thinking. We can't give him counsel. That he has done this all. And so when we realize what God has done, we worship him for it. It was all part of God's plan. So we, we see who God is, we see what God's done, and then we see what God will do. That God has an eternal salvation prepared for us. That God has an eternal hope lined up for us that we live for him because of the future that we have. 
that we are not living in a, man, I hope I'm going to cross my fingers and I'm going to pray really hard and I'm not sure about it. Kind of like that Christmas gift of, I'm really hoping I got that new bicycle, but man, I might be let down. But instead, Hebrews tells us it is a sure and steadfast assurance of the eternal hope that we have. That God is going to see us through to this glorious perfection that Paul tells us in Philippians 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He says in Revelation 21 that there is going to come a day where he says the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That that is what God will do. He's leading us to that place. And you know, so what we see is a superficial view of what God has done and we see what God is going to do. That every single Sunday we gather together to be reminded of what God has done, what God is going to do. And so we are hopefully being encouraged to go and live lives of worship. Because that's what worship is. It is living your life for God. It's not what, it is not just what we do here. This is an aspect of it. But it is so much deeper. It is putting God at the forefront of your life and living for him in every single thing that you do. That as Colossians 3.23 tells us, whether you, uh, so whether you work, you work not for man, but as for the Lord, whatever you do, do it for the Lord and not for man. 1 Corinthians 10.31, he tells us whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for the Lord. That when you go to work, you're not worshiping your job. You are working to glorify God. You are seeing that as a place to live your life of worship every single moment. That when you are home with your family, you're worshiping God in how you live your life. You are raising your children or your grandchildren in the name of Jesus and you are pointing them towards God. You are redeeming every moment of your life to glorify God because God created you for his glory. You are created, you are created to worship. The question is, what are you worshiping? Are you directing every aspect of your life towards Jesus? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Are you living lives of worship or are you a cultural Christian that says, I'm going to do the church thing and then I'm going to separate my life from the church thing because I've said it since I've been here. This is not church. You are the church. The church is not a gathering place. The church is a body of believers that gathers here, but it's so much more. That you don't come to worship, you live a life of worship. 
that you do everything for God. Because Paul said that, oh, he said, oh, the depth and the riches and the knowledge of God. Who is going to guide him in, in Romans chapter 11? He goes on to Romans chapter 12 and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, because of who God is, what he's done and what he will do. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, dying to yourself and raising yourself to Christ, being holy and acceptable to God. Notice what he says. This is your spiritual worship. You are presenting everything you do to God. And then he says, this is how you do it. You don't conform to the pattern of the world, but instead you be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What Paul's telling us is we change the way we think. We're not just going through trivial ways of life. We are doing everything to glorify and worship God daily. When you understand who God is, what he's done, and what he is going to do for you, that's the natural response. When you truly understand it, to live for him in everything that you do. Otherwise, I feel like it's a pretty profane example, but it is that I'm going to go and I'm going to have a date with God and then sleep around the rest of the time. I'm going to go and write that love song to God, and then I'm going to live my life for somebody else. And it's almost like what uh, Joshua says at the end of Joshua. Whether it is right to live for God or not, I'm paraphrasing here. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You decide, but don't play this game of I can have the best of both worlds. It's kind of like being married and thinking I can still go out with my ex-girlfriend. See how well your marriage is going to last if you do that. See how well your relationship with God is going to be. If you come to him and you're like, hey, I want the Sunday thing, but then the rest of the week you're not living for him. It's like you're not going to have a good relationship with him. I read it. I've talked about this book. My goodness, it is revolutionary to my life. I would encourage you. It's called The Awe of God, A-W-E, The Awe of God. And there's this example in it where the guy comes up to the pastor after a service, and he's telling the pastor, you know what, pastor? I sleep around. I'm, I'm, I'm sleeping around with a whole lot of people. I, I don't want to talk about that, though. I want to know, why is my business not doing well? And it's like, there's a big disconnect there. You don't have the fear of God to where you're going to live for him. You're wanting the benefits of God. You're wanting the benefits of marriage while still living that secular life. Make up your mind. If you're going to live for God, dedicate every moment to him. And you're going to fall short. But praise be to God that he gives us grace when we do. He is a forgiving God. That when we understand who he is, what he has done, and we put that all before us, we live lives of worship to him. You see, here's the thing about Jesus that I think a lot of people misunderstand. He didn't come to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. Jeremiah tells us he came to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He didn't come just to clean you up and polish you. 
He came to make you new. If anyone, is in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He wants to make you an entirely new creation so that we die to our former way of life, so that we can live for him. The question that I have is who is it or what is it that you are worshiping in your life? Is it God? Because he deserves to be on the throne. Or is it something else? And if it's something else, I'll say good for being honest with yourself. And now remove that and place God on the throne where he deserves to be and live for him. Father God, thank you again so much for what you have done. God, that as we look through your word and we see who you are, we see so many things about you, God, that you are good. And God, that you care for us so much and we see what you've done and we see the future that you've given us. And God, I just wanna take this moment and repent and say, I'm sorry for not making you Lord of my life in the times that I don't and not living my life to worship you. But so often, especially it seems in our culture, we worship self and we worship how we can better our name and better our lives instead of glorifying you. And so God, I just pray that you work in our hearts, that as you say, you will transform our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. I pray that we open ourselves up to allow you to do that. And God, that starting now, regardless of what's done in the past, Paul says, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I press on toward the call that you have called us towards. And so God, I pray starting now, we say we're gonna live our lives for you and everything that we do, that we're not just gonna say it's a Sunday thing, but it is who we are. We are creatures of worship that live for you and everything. God, help us in that. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen.